Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. My name is Garth McKenzie. I've been trading since the age of 16. I headed up the retail derivatives desk for a large stockbroking firm in South Africa from 2003 until 2009. After that, I left the corporate world and I started traderscorner.co.za, an online service that caters to DIY traders providing analysis and trader education. I also ran the Traders Corner TV show on Business Day TV for over 10 years from 2009 to 2019. I've recently relocated to the UK and I trade both the South African and the offshore markets. Through this series, we hope to connect traders with other traders across the globe to share information, tips, and general advice on derivatives trading. The podcast series is brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. On to today's episode. Joining me on today's podcast is Arthur Buchner. And now, Arthur is a, a man that I've got a very interesting history with. Uh, we go back a number of years and not so much just from a trading perspective, but in fact, Arthur was one of my school teachers at Parktown Boys, taught me in Standard 7, uh, coached PT, and you also coached cricket, Arthur. And uh, I very clearly remember one day when I was at uh, we, I was at Parktown Boys and we were playing cricket match against King Edwards and you were the, the cricket coach, the teacher on duty that day, umpiring the cricket match. And um, I was bowling and uh, I hit the batsman on the pads, but I could see it was never going to be out. So I never appealed. And uh, you said to me, Mackenzie, anything on the pads, you appeal. And <laughs> <laughs> you, you told me years later that that's, you, know, you didn't want to be there really uh, umpiring a schoolboy cricket match on a Saturday all afternoon. You, wouldn't, you wanted the game to be over so you could go home to the pub and have a drink. So, absolutely, there were always tea and biscuits, you know, you had to get to the tea and biscuits. Absolutely. So that's how you and I met a long time ago. And uh, that was, it, that was 1993, 1994, um, when I was still a youngster at Parktown Boys. And I remember very clearly you, you ran the uh, JSE Schools Challenge at the, at the school at the time. And then I remember you leaving the teaching profession and going off in to get a job with a stockbroking firm. And you came back each year, every year we had a, a careers day and people from different walks of life came and spoke to the boys about what possible careers they could look at. And you obviously came and spoke to us about stock markets and stockbroking and what have you. And, um, and then years later, you and I reconnected uh, when I eventually got through varsity and got a job in the market. And uh, you were heading up the desk at BOE what is it, BOE Corporate then? The, the, the yeah, it, was, uh, it was actually the old Ed Hearn, which had been bought by, um, by BOE, and it became BOE Securities. So, um, yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a random walk that ended up with both of us actually in the same company. And uh, from my recollection, me coming to you and saying, God, the CFDs are the next big thing. And uh, if you're going to differentiate yourself in this game, you have to get involved in it. And, uh, um, you know, getting you to set up the private client CFD offering for um, BOE, which was downstairs, was separate to the institutional side, which I was on, 
was uh, instrumental in actually getting single stock futures. I think we actually started with single stock futures. That's right. Because uh, everything, everything was indexation at that stage. And uh, I, I knew that there was a market for single stock futures. And uh, we listed the first four. But, of course, we needed the retail um, market to come into it. And uh, hence, you were employed in the, in the retail space. And we were in the institutional space market making. So, you know, from uh, trying to get off the cricket field quicker to eventually uh, employing you in, in, in the market, uh, it is very random how that uh, came about. Yeah, it certainly is. But it, it's, I mean, I, you know, I always go th- and, and I think through life, you, sometimes you need a little bit of luck to come your way. And I certainly consider that uh, a little bit of luck that came my way. Um, because the actual background story to me uh, joining you at BOE was that I was, in fact, with Deal Smith Securities, which was a company that yeah. ran into all sorts of trouble. And, uh, it, and, and one day, the you know, company was suddenly in curatorship and being liquidated, and that was splashed all over the front page of the newspapers. And I didn't know what I was going to do for a job at that stage because it wasn't a, a particularly friendly environment. Uh, it was 2002, so it was a bear market. And uh, I thought, gee, I'm a bit stuck here. And next thing, my phone rang, and it was you. And you said, you know, come and have a chat to us. Uh, because we might have something for you to do in the stockbroking business at BOE. So you know, that for me was a great stroke of luck and right place, right time, and everything worked out. And, and I certainly consider that um, you know, it was a massive step in the right direction in terms of my own career. And, uh, and, and I ended up being there for seven years, working quite closely alongside you with you as a bit of a mentor uh, along the way. And, uh, and I really consider those very, very fortunate years. So I've got a, a, you know, I'm always immensely yeah. grateful to you for what you've done for me in my career over the years as well. Yeah. You know, you talk about a bit of luck, uh, Garth. I, I actually have realized that not only getting a job in the market is a, is a stroke of luck, but a lot of people have that luck and a lot of people get that opportunity. And I've, uh, in my lifetime, uh, all of 27 or 28 years in the market, have come across some incredibly astute and incredibly smart guys but they're not around so they got the luck they got in the market they would have made exceptional traders but somewhere along the line you know they they either blew themselves up or they uh, they got unlucky you know whether it be a trade uh, that someone puts on and the next thing you know it's a Steinoff as an example uh, you know, and that's a that's a more recent one, but I mean, I can go back to 1995, 96, where we we you know we used to have liquidations on the on the floor, and uh, one of them was a, a company called Usco, and I remember a guy having a position in Usco, and Usco was just a copper company, he used to make copper piping, and it halved in price. The guy blew himself up, and about a year later, Usco reinvented themselves as a tech company. And suddenly, 98, 99, the go-go years, this guy would have, you would have had a 10-bagger, you know. And that's the luck of, of, uh, of not only getting the job, but you have to then make it work, too. And uh, there are many, many, many smart guys that I know are not in the market now. And then there are many guys that I, I would classify as, you know, one, one brain cell short of being a plant. <laughs> and yet they've, they've survived and they know... They, they've learned from mistakes. And I think that's, that is key is to learn from mistakes, you know? Yeah. 
<laughs> one brain cell short of a plant. I like that one. But Art, now, just going back to the beginning. So you, what we said previously, you left the teaching profession. You, you went along to a stockbroking firm. If I remember correctly, I think you actually took a pay cut to go from teaching to being a junior yeah. in a stockbroking firm. Am I right? Yeah, the short story is, um, you know, I ran the Stock Exchange Challenge game at the school. We won it the one year, went to go and get the, uh, the trophy. Guy walks down. Uh, the first year he doesn't do anything second year we came second guy walks down he says listen I was at Parktown I, um, uh, I we didn't have the stock exchange challenge at that stage you must be quite bright what do you do I said I was a mathematics graduate and he said uh, I'll, I'll, why don't you write the exams and I'll give you a job because uh, it's good to see and it's also interesting that you've been here two years in a row went and wrote the exams phoned him back up and in those days we used to have uh, long lunches you know and it turns out that he'd been on a long lunch and had a couple of pints too many and uh, had forgotten that he'd made me the offer but uh, me actually saying to him listen um, uh, I've written exams this is what it is he then recalled and I went in for an interview and got the job and it wasn't a, a, a drop in salary because my teacher's salary at that stage was 2,800 rand a month and uh, he offered me 2,000 rand so, uh, and that was a three, and that was a three-month pro probation. Which, after seven months, I uh, approached him and said, "You know, it's now seven months down the line." And he said, "Oh, sorry, time goes so quickly." And I said, "I needed a salary because I, I had three children at that stage, and uh, I had another one on the way." So, uh, uh, anyway, I needed to say in the old days that they weren't that keen on giving you salary increases and uh, it wasn't that difficult to find a job on the floor because you just walked down and you spoke to another guy and he would say to you, oh, geez, this chair's empty. And hence I moved from, from that position I'm, and I'm grateful and I'm still friends with the guy who hired me in the, in the market. And um, I moved into what is then SMK, Senecombaton Kitsoff, and I stayed there pretty much my whole career, you know, SMK got bought by BOE, which was the old Ed Hearn, and then BOE got bought by Nedbank, and I just moved along. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting story. But I mean, you did very, very well in the markets, have done very, very well. But um, everyone starts somewhere. And when it came to, to your early days in the market, I mean, what was it like? Did you, and, and I'm talking trading PA now for yourself, your personal account, were you were you successful from the outset, or did you have you know like a lot of us blow up an account or two in the in the right. early days before things started to come right for you? You know, 1996, you uh, you always have friends who would come to you and say, "Well, oh, you're there, you know, you 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 must be like right at the call face. You must be getting all this inside information. It must be easy for you to make money," and um, you know. I, at that stage, I was going, oh, you know, I didn't know what, uh, I think I had 20,000 rand as my net asset value. And uh, I went to a friend of mine's mother and I borrowed 100,000 rand from her. Uh, and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm close to it. And I'll only really do trades that are um, uh, secure. And she was old. She was in her late 60s at that stage. And I ended up losing about 60% of that um, 100,000. I lost it in, if I say to you, five months. You know, it was, it was less than five months. And um, I, it took me about two years to repay that, uh, trading, uh, you know, buying and selling. And, and what, what really um, kick-started it all was uh, the tech bubble. 
because in the tech bubble, in the tech bubble, what used to happen with um, banks like Standard Bank is all these IPOs. And if you had a hundred thousand rand, for example, you could go to Standard Bank and say, "I'll give. Uh, I want to buy a million rands with the shares." This is pre-CFDs and this is pre-single uh, um, stock futures. And then they would apply for your IPO with a million rand, but you would know that you would only get 10% of the shares because um, uh, there was always oversubscribed. So, you know, you take your 100 grand, you'd apply for a million rands with the stock. Standard Bank would lend you the money for three days. You would then get 10% of your stock, which was effectively 100 grand, and then the market would open up 20%. Literally, the IPOs used to open up 20, 30% higher, and you'd make yourself 10 or 20 grand. And that's, that actually is what created the nesting of uh, effectively scalping IPOs in the tech bubble, uh, which then created an, an enough money to actually go out and, and, and start to have um, bigger, bigger positions in the market. You know, and I've always been a, a, at that stage. Also, I was a fan of uh, risk arbitrage. Mm. You know, there's there's not much risk arbitrage at the moment. I think the market has become so um, technical, and there's so many computer-driven algorithms and the like that there aren't the gaps. But in those days, and uh, Nando's was one of my favorite stories. You know, there was an offer to minorities at Nando's it was at seventy-five cents. Um, it was trading at 65 cents. So you could still go and you could buy Nando shares at 65 cents and knowing that in three months time, you're going to get 75 cents. So, you know, you would, you would go and buy as many Nando shares as you could at 65 cents. And then uh, when the offer was uh, tick boxed and said, okay, it's all done, you would receive your, your 75 cents. So you'd make 12, 13% on, on, on a position with very little risk because at those stages, if a management was doing a buyout, um, you made money. So these were, these, these were the easy times. And, and I say that uh, with, with a little bit of trepidation, but they were easier times because there were bigger gaps mm-hmm. that enabled you to, to make money. And, and I was also a, um, in derivatives, you know, so I, I, I used to gear up quite a bit or try to gear up as much as I could um, when when a trade really stood out, there were arbitrage trades. I think most of my money that I would have made as a trader were in arbitrage trades, and those don't exist today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, you're right that the market certainly become a lot more. Um, I, I want to say more efficient, but it's, I suppose those kind of opportunities are just not as as evident anymore as what they were back in those days. And I, I, I guess one has to have a you know your approach, your strategy towards the market has had to evolve over the years as things have changed, as maybe more liquidities come into the markets, and as some of those sort of gaps have closed down. What would you say now is your is your primary trading strategy? I mean, do you have a, a primary strategy or do you have multiple strategies? What what you know what, what do you find that you do mostly at the moment in, in order to make money in the market? What what kind of strategy so, do you employ? So I'm 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 a member of about four or five WhatsApp groups and uh, uh, a couple of trader groups and. I think the most important thing, well, first of all, um, 10 years ago, if someone came to me and said that I'd use technical trading, I'd say to them, you've got to be joking. Because 10 years ago, you could use gut feel, you could feel a market, uh, there were natural orders, there were humans who were putting the orders into the market, you could feel there was a seller, you could feel there was a buyer, just in the, in, in the action of the market. 
algorithms have completely taken that away. And that's why you're seeing movements like 10% and 18% and 20% in a day. I mean, today we've had, I, I think there are, I'm just looking at my watch just now, there's seven stocks with more than a 15% move in the day. And that's because there's no liquidity. And when there's no liquidity, a buyer comes in, he starts buying, and a buyer is an algorithm, and it just buys until it gets the volume. So what I've found, 10 years ago, I used to use gut feel a lot. I've actually referred now more to technical trading. So, so I look for um, volume at, uh, at turning points. So I let, I let the algo sell and, 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 or buy, whatever it's doing. And when it gets to a point where, let's say, um, average daily volume on a stock is a million shares, when it gets to a point where 500 or 600,000 shares have traded and now you start to see more volume trade, that's when I start to trade. And I start to look for smaller gaps. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm more of a scalper. So I, I'm not a guy who comes in and buys and looks for 10% moves. I'm a guy who looks for a 1% move and I'm trying to make the differential between that 1% when, when things get overbought or when things get oversold. And I tend to be a contrarian trader too. So when something moves up 6 or 7%, I look for the, the opportunity to sell it and then buy it back a little bit uh, cheaper. But a lot of that comes down to watching the graphs that's got the volume that tells you, hold on a second, the, the, the buyer who's pushed it up 6 or 7% is now bumped into a seller. The seller's got volume too. And that's when the opportunity comes. The, the second thing that I use quite a bit is being on all these, um, these traded groups and there's a lot of people on the groups that are young and there's a couple of guys that are older and the like. And everyone has um, the negatives and positives. You know, the young guys are gung-ho. They just want to buy. They want to get in early. They think it's cheap. Older guys will sit back and they'll wait until all the young guys are squealing. And when the young guys are squealing, that's pretty much close enough than when you need to buy. So, you know, using, using other people's um, fear when the first idea comes, uh, you have to you have to be patient, and I think what I've learned in the last three to four years uh, is you don't need to be the first guy to do the trade. Let, mm. let it let it settle first. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a saying that the market will always push to the point of maximum pain, and I guess that's exactly what you're talking to is that the market will push to where those sort of amateur traders might really be squeezed out of their trades and then you sitting on the other side providing the liquidity coming along saying you know let me help you out with that problem that stock that's creating such a lot of pain in your life and take the contrarian view and the amazing thing about it is you know it's not, we're not talking about young traders now we're talking about guys that have got 15 20 years and i get caught in it too okay everyone does you, you don't you can't sit in your hands when there's movement you do get involved in it but when and the second thing is that you only have one set of eyes. So you might have four screens, but you're looking at two or three shares. Um, and, and that's what your focus should be. You shouldn't be trading in more than two or three or four shares. You know, I tend to stick with the S&P index and I, uh, and I tend to stick with three or four shares. But then someone will mention something because everyone's doing their research and it's this constant flow of information that's coming into your desk that you're sort of saying, Okay, I'll have a look at that. That sounds quite interesting. You know, be it a relative, uh, you know, Nasdaq, ten cent, or or the like. Guys will refer to relatives. I like to look at relatives because at the end of the day, I don't know whether the 
S&P is going to crash or whether the S&P is going to be in a bull market. I don't think anyone really can turn around and say to you, the next crash is coming in in two weeks' time or the next bull market is coming in, the, in, in a year's time. So relatives work really well. So when something gets overbought versus something else and pretty much in the same sector, when someone points it out to you, just be patient. You don't have to get involved straight away, but it, it invariably will get to a bottom. I'll give you an example of this um, Vodacom MTN. You know, uh, MTN was underperforming Vodacom for about three weeks, and it, it actually stretched to the point that it was about 20%. From when we first started looking at it, it actually moved 20% against the guys. Okay, and then at 15%, you started to put it on, and literally in, in three days, that whole discount has unwound. Mm. Okay, that's 20% plus another 10%. But if you'd bought early on, by the time it was 20% against you, you were only just too happy to maybe have a bounce of 10% to get out of your stock. So I think my, what, what I'm getting to, my, my, my golden rule is the first time you see a trade, count to 10 but you're going to get another opportunity to put it on. You don't have to put it on immediately. These things go a little bit further than you ever thought. Yeah, no, that's good advice. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Now with that, I mean, being a contrarian trader um, and taking the other side of, of, of the pain, as it were, do you, do you average into a trade and do you you know, break that cardinal rule of averaging down or averaging into a losing trade? Because I mean, obviously to get the exact turning point is very difficult and almost impossible. So how do you go about that um, to ensure that you, you know, that you average in or do you average down? What is your strategy around that? I, I do average, but I am, I am loath to take losses. In fact, I miss a lot of trades because I'll buy something I'll feel that it, it, it's just not, you know, it's just not holding. I'll, I, I can turn around and if it's 20 basis points away from where I bought it, but it just doesn't feel right, I'll cut it. I, I, you know, I don't have to sit in something and ride it for 3 or 4 or 5%. You won't find me doing a lot of that. But it's also because I'm a, I, I once read a book, it's a Trade Like a Shark, Not Like a Whale. You know, so... A guy who's running a fund which has got a billion under management, he's got to go in and he's got to buy himself 200,000 Anglo-Americans. I have to buy 10,000 Anglo-Americans. You know, and if I make three rand on 10,000 Anglo-Americans, that's enough money. So if I buy, buy 5,000 Anglo-Americans and now I feel, oh, it's not feeling that good, it's still coming down, I'll sell 3,000 of them. I'll keep 2,000 and then I'll look to buy the 3,000 lower down. So I'm constantly looking for an entry point where it actually feels like the risk is, is less. But I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a fundamental position. So let's say 10,000 Anglos is my, is, is my size of my trade. I'll start with five, sell it out, keep two, then buy back in, keep buying back in, but keep selling out, keep buying back in, selling out. And then once it turns and it starts to move in my, in my favor, then I'll go to full weight. So, okay, it's, so it's more about a feel, a feel um, way of trading. 
Yeah. So you, and then once you, you, once you can see that you're on the right side of that move, then you, you, then you add and you fill, you fill up your position, as you say. So you're actually more adding to a winner as opposed to adding to a loser. Yeah. But you, but you're never going to catch the bottom, as you say. So, so you, but, but writing, buying something when it feels wrong and saying, well, I'll just, I'll just write it for another rand or two and then I'll average in and I'll get my cost average price lower. And oh, if it falls a little bit more, I'll buy some more. Well, invariably, what happens is you buy five thousand first price, you buy three thousand the next price, and at the bottom you can only buy a hundred because you've taken so much pain on the way down. So I tend to try not to take any pain on the way down. And the other thing is I find that people concentrate on twenty stocks. Well, if you're a fundamentalist and if you're going to hold your portfolio for a long time, then you can, by all means go and go and have a watch list of twenty stocks. My watch list is six shares, and what I do is I watch those shares constantly, and when something new comes onto my watch list, I pop it on. But the minute that, the, and it's normally in vogue stuff, you know, so uh, something that's moving around, everyone's talking about it. I pop it onto my watch list. I start to trade it, try to get a feel for it. Um, once the 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 movements happened or the the excitement around the movements happened, I'll take it off my watch list again, and I just stick with my six shares, you know. And uh, I know those shares. I understand them. Well, I think I understand them. That's been tested in the last three weeks because some of these property shares have uh, have uh, really taken a, 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 a plundering, you know, and what you thought was a dividend yield or a yield is uh, no longer a yield. But, uh, you know, you could have written something like redefined from five rand down to one rand 50 and now at one rand 50, you're suddenly hearing, hold on a second, the tenants aren't going to be paying. They've still got to pay all their leases and then you'll be cutting a 150. So, even if you know a share, the unknown unknowns do hurt you. Yeah, but I, have, I literally have I have six six shares that I that I like to trade and I like to be active in, and then the other ones are just little peripherals. Yeah, so raise a sharp focus. And when it comes to risk, I mean, do you have a, a sort of a number in your head as to when you know when you cut? Because everyone, you know, a lot of traders think about the two percent rule, or you never lose more than two percent of your capital, or one percent, and have a number in mind. I mean, are, are you as rigid as that, or or do you no. apply some level of flexibility? No, if if it's not feeling good, it's not feeling good. I don't care whether I've lost a, a quarter of a percent, or one percent, or two percent. You know, if 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 I can look at the share and and one of my classic um, uh, trading techniques is if the all share is up and a share that I'm long of is down on the day. And remember, I'm doing a lot of intraday trading with the smaller positions overnight. I I will look at that and say, okay, the thing's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. When when the market is rallying up and this stock is not, and everything else is around is rallying, then I'll say, oh, I'm not going to cut that. I'm not going to sit and wait and hope that tomorrow, the seller that is there today is suddenly not there, and then it's going to gap. Okay, so that's where I say that sometimes I miss out on trades because I'm, I'm that risk averse that I'm not going to sit in something if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Mm. You know? And of course, in this, in this market, that's become very problematic because you, you will find, and I'll give another example, Aspen, uh, two days or three days ago, the market had a massive rally. Most of the shares were up 10%. And Aspen was down 2%. And I was long of Aspen. And I was like, oh, gee, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to it. I cut it. And the next day, they were up 6%. And it just so happened that there was an intraday order on Aspen, most probably, that kept it under pressure. But I don't second guess that. 
I don't say, oh no, this fundamentally is an amazing stock and I'm just going to be long of it. If it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, it gets, it gets a hoof and uh, we look for another opportunity to get in. Yeah, so you're guided very much by the trading action that you see there and you're not going to get clouded by any noise and fundamental views and what have you, which is a, a, such a common mistake that amateur traders make. There's there's a lot of things to be said for fundamentals, but you know, at 50 rand Anglo-Americans were supposedly going to go bankrupt, the market cap was less than what their debt is. Just like um, last week when Sassel was at 22 or 23 rand, um, you know, they got downgraded by Moody's or I can't remember if it was Fitch or Moody's or any one of those pumpkin houses, you know, and that was the bottom in Sassel. Now, if you were a fundamentalist and you suddenly saw, oh, they've been downgraded and uh, the oil price, of course, has hit $20 a barrel uh, also last week and yet Sassel's bottomed at that. So, so you, can't, you can't only go on fundamentals and what you're seeing in the market. You have to go on a little bit of a contrarian that, hey, hold on a second. This is seen, this is seen, this is seen. And remember that this stock has fallen from 160 down to 22 or 23 rand way before any of those other things happened. You know, so, so um, fundamental is good because it means that you can hold a stock with conviction. But if fundamentals change, you must be able to adapt and recognize that, hold on a second, what used to be a buy is no longer a buy or what used to be a sell because uh, Tesla is a classic example of uh, a stock that everyone got caught short of. Mm. The fundamentals of Tesla said that it was a sell. But the overcrowded trade with everyone being short of Tesla meant that it only had one way to go. It had to go up. Mm. You know, we have an example in the South African market at the moment in clicks. It's a 33 PE stock. It's overvalued. It's a retailer. Um, you know, there's 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 no ways that it cannot um, suffer the same contagion that is happening with all the other retailers. But it happens to be in an index, and whenever the inflows into the index come in, clicks goes up. Now, at some stage, and I don't know, I'm not short of it anymore, and I I trade in and I trade out of it. At some stage, the indexation stocks will sell out of it, and it will move down. And then everyone will suddenly start to try and get out of it. And then it will re-rate back to a 10 or a 12 P where it should be. But I'm not there fundamentally short of it waiting for that day. Because I know that that day can take six months to a year. And that's not what I do. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating conversation, Art. Um, we're running a little bit short on time now. So I'm going to just ask you one or two more questions. Um, first one quickly is just around trading books. Um, I know you've recommended a number of books to me over the years, many of which I've read. I mean, I've, we've both read stacks of trading books. If you had to pick one or two books that you think every trader should have read or should read, what would it be? Okay, you know, all the, all the old ones are, <clears throat> are classics, but I've actually just finished reading two, which I think are, they have to be read, okay? And uh, it's The Behavioral Investor by a guy called Daniel Crosby. And what is amazing about this book is that it is a psychologist who has basically gone in and done studies of traders, how they react, how the brain reacts, how it, how it, it can't fathom, uh, you can't think rationally. You know, we think we're all rational, but we're actually not. And for me, 
getting into the psychology of trading is more important than looking at the technicals, etc. It's 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 getting control of your emotions and knowing that you are anchored and knowing that your beliefs will make you do stupid things in the market just because you think it's what is actually true, but it's not really true. So that's one that I, I think you have to read. And the other one is um, by a guy called John Stepak called The Skeptical Investor. And The Skeptical Investor, what it does in a, in a nutshell, it basically is more for not the trader, but it's for the, the fund, fundamental guy who's building a portfolio. What to watch for, this, this sell-off, for example, in the market, you could have used six or seven of the things that he said uh, in his book that you need to look for. You know, how are you going to build your portfolio and the like? And, and these are, are the, the, and they are, they are newly published. I think 2019, February, and the other one is about October 2019. You know, to me, they are so pertinent to today because they're also looking at algorithms. They're looking at um, how computers are dominating and how artificial intelligence is, is learning what we take to be for granted, and that's how they are arbitraging us. Okay. Great, Art. And last question, if I may. I mean, you, you run um, Courtney Capital. That's your firm uh, down in South Africa. And you've got a lot of young guys that come through the doors there um, wanting to learn to trade. And you've always been, um, you know, I think you've been a mentor to many people, not just myself. You've always been an incredibly accommodating guy uh, for youngsters coming into the market. If, if a youngster comes to you and says, I want to become a trader, this is what I want to do for my career, and what, what should I do? If you had to give them three pieces of advice, what would that be? He's got, I, I, I first of all, tell them to run for the hills. Uh, <laughs> because because it, 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 it has changed. It has become such a difficult game. My, I, would, I would say to him, go out. Learn how to program, okay? So learn how to automate your thought processes so that you're not sucked in to what, what your brain is telling you to do because the minute you start to think, you will panic at the bottom. So the first thing is I would get him to, to go out and do a, a proper Excel uh, programming computer-based course where you can do as much automation as possible and then go and back study what you believe to be how to trade. Is it a low P? Is it a price to book that you're evaluating or are you trying to trade technically? And your signals should be automated. Your, your, your signals should be automated, but your execution should be human. Because the problem is that as a human, you, 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 don't, you don't see the signal you see the signal too early, okay? And then you react too early. You should see the signal and you should then react a little bit slower. So that would be my first thing. Go and get a programming background because the world is moving that way. Trading is moving that way. So I think 70% of all trades executed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange are now done through algorithms. You need to know how the algorithms are thinking, how they're working, and they're continually adapting. And the only way that you can do that is be, becoming a computer programmer. Don't become a trader. Become a computer programmer and know what they're putting, what the, what the inputs are. Uh, that's number one. Number two, don't trade if you think you're going to make a living out of it because uh, you can't start with a million and think you're going to make 500 a year. 
you, you're going to lose your 500 and your million. You know, you, you can only be a trader if you have sufficient amount of money that you don't have to live off it. Now, that's very hard when you're a, a junior starting out. That's why a junior starting out, you should have a job, you should have a fixed income, you shouldn't be reliant on your trading. You should learn how to trade while you're getting a fixed income so you're not under pressure to make money to trade. Most of the guys that I've had in, in and I'm talking about young guys, old guys, guys that have been in the market that don't make it, don't make it because they have a fixed income base that, that they have to earn and you can't trade under pressure. You have to trade only when you want to trade, not because you have to trade. That's mm. the second thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and is there a third or is that it? Uh, sure. I think those, those are the first, those are the first two, you know, if you can get someone who can actually uh, fund your trading and, uh, and, and teach you, that's even better. Okay. I think that would be the third thing, but your know, banks don't hire traders anymore. And um, the, yeah, they're all going computer driven. Uh, so I don't think that's an option and uh, forget, forget about all these trading houses that will teach you how to trade and, and they're like, what they can do is that they can, they can help you with the psychology of trading and they can give you a lot of tips and a lot of advice and you should take that. But the only way that you will actually learn is to actually trade yourself. Yeah. You have to burn. You, you, learn, you burn, you learn. You, you don't, you don't um, learn by making money. You learn by losing money. Yeah. Now, good advice as always. Well, Arthur, I knew it would be fascinating talking to you and we've gone a bit over time, but I think it's well worth it. So thank you very, very much yep. for joining me on this podcast today. Um, it's always a pleasure chatting to you and uh, thanks so much for your time. And I'm sure we'll catch up again in London soon once when, again when, for another nice long lunch and a beer. You know, when, 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 when they open them up, because geez, I'll tell you now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, looking forward to that next pint when it's going to be poured that's for sure yeah aren't we all aren't we all yeah all right Art, well, stay, stay safe thank you very much for your time and uh good luck and we'll we'll see see each other soon thanks okay thanks god ciao Cheers. bye thanks for joining us for today's episode of talking with traders brought to you by ig a world-leading cfd provider we really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.